there's a lot of people just selling snake oil is probably the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let's be completely transparent and like shift that dynamic of uh, anyone we work with. Like we will give you real time stats and all of our spins and everything. Data standards and information sharing may be the future of the legal industry, but deploying a solution is a challenge all on its own. And so I had to rebuild our tech stack up from the ground up. And I realized this is actually the part that's hard. You know, people usually don't get it's, you know, the tech behind it, how you add the attribution, the data modeling, like all of the audience targeting, that kind of stuff. And so it made me reevaluate what is like the value I can bring. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, where we give you the tools you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. Anthony Johnson is a visionary equal parts computer scientist, marketer, and lawyer. Anthony's firm hit number one on Google Places in Arkansas before ever trying a case. Since then, he has founded the Attorney Group, a digital network of attorneys, and is an investor in the nationally ranked tech accelerator program, Coplex. He was recently dubbed the industry's techiest lawyer by the Bar Association. Anthony offers us a look at opportunities for innovation in tech for the legal industry and the future of VC-backed law firms. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Anthony Johnson, founder at Johnson Firm. I was in engineering, computer engineering in undergrad, and I was playing guitar like two or three times a week on Dixon Street. I was in the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. And I remember I picked engineering because it was one of those courses where they said, I was like, all right, I don't really want to go to school all the time. So which one can I get away with just going to tests? Really good at taking tests. And uh, they said engineering. You just got to go midterms, finals, two scores. So I was like, done. So I became a computer engineer. My dad was an engineer. I had interest too. Well, the last semester, there's some class called Virtual Hardware Dynamics Circuits, right? It was super boring. And I I had this deal with my roommate. He was a really sharp guy, Tony Lofton, and he has a PhD in engineering. He was always on time, went to every class, took notes, right? Had a full scholarship, but I didn't want to live on campus. So I said, I'll get a dorm room. You can have it, but let me take the same classes as you. And then whenever test day comes, you call me. I share notes. We study. I'll stay up all night. I go to class. And so that all worked out great all through college. And then my last semester came and there was one time went out, played guitar, just missed a class, got an F. And so I ran back in and I go, Hey, listen, a little hungover at the time. And I go, uh, you know, I'm not even going to be an engineer. The best thing I could think of off the top of my head was like, I'm going to law school. I was like, surely you're not going to fail me over this one course. You know, I was still like magnum or cum laude, that kind of thing, you know, good grades. And he was like, all right, we just like, show me your LSAT and I'll give you a B. I was like, okay. So of course, at this point, I just made this up. So I'm like, let me go run and sign up for an LSAT real quick. So I had to do that. Came back, ended up getting a B in the class. Uh, also ended up doing very well in the test. Um, I remember I got a uh, scholarship to go to Columbia partially, and I just kind of decided not to go. And so I went into actually got my Series 7. So I was a stockbroker for a while instead because I didn't like the corporate, like big data worlds so like Axiom and like the, the people in town that were or the Walmart, like just old school technologists that went a fan. And so I ended up getting my Series 7s, doing some stockbroker, money management, life insurance. And then I decided maybe people trust me with more money. 
if I go become a lawyer, <laughs> made sense to me, right? For like a 20 year old, 22 year old. So after a few years out of college with an engineering degree, helping people manage their money, I decided to go to law school right before my LSAT went out just locally at night. That was kind of my path to, to incidentally becoming story. a lawyer. Let's talk about collaboration in such a competitive landscape. So what benefits do you see in collaborating with lawyers early on? What benefits do you see there? Yeah, it's interesting. So my personality, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially through COVID, you know, there's been a lot of introspective opportunity. My personality is definitely more of like the kind of get you done, do it yourself, rebellious, self-starter, you know, kind of good person. Probably why everyone said I go should go be a lawyer, you know, challenge everything. But whenever I start in this industry, I also realize that it can be a flaw. So it's it's an interesting thing where it's like, I wanted to kind of hack my way into doing everything myself because I think I could do anything. And then you get to a point in scale where it's like, I was doing 40, 50,000 emails a month. You know, we had like maybe eight people in like 10,000 cases. Like it was, it was insane. And so you start realizing in order to do anything significant, then you need other people. And so during COVID, it was kind of shifting towards like, I don't really have to work. Like, I, like what was my reason? What's my why? Like what defines me? And so I dug into that a lot and I realized like what lawyers really should stand for. And I always related to the tech industry before it was cool. You know, like uh, you watch General Magic or some of those, those documentaries about kind of how that played out. It was like, you know, they were just nerds before. It wasn't like cool nerds. It was like just nerds, <laughs> you know, before that was rebranded. And then they made the cover of the Rolling Stones after the Apple II. And so I was like, we're just like that before the Rolling Stones cover. So like lawyers are just superheroes stuck in this packaging of, of really bad tech and, and ambulance chasing stigmas. And they're waiting for this kind of revolution. And so I, I've kind of recently have shifted my mindset of, I don't want to take over the world personally. I was like, I, I realized I want to enable and empower the lawyers, which are really the champions of humanity right now. Like, I mean, war doesn't happen as much on the battlefield, at least in first world countries. It's more in the courtrooms and the legality and everything going on with decentralized because they're very legally premised, like when it comes to the future agency of freedom or America and lawyers are really championing that cause. And so our goal now is to really reshift and say, how can we use our talents and why we're different to help collaborate and enable the whole industry to lift up and innovate? Let's talk about the attorney group. You know, so what went into its success? You know, how did it form? What does it stand for? When I was first became a lawyer, you know, I had a web website company. So I built websites. I did SEO. I built most of the personal injury guys' websites in my state back when I was starting law school. So we had a small like web dev server, web server admin type company. And so whenever I got out of law school, I just launched the site and I always had more cases than I could handle. So then I started, you know, working with some, I was like, well, this is important to this person. Let me go try to find the best lawyer to help me and we can split the money. So I was in the weird situation where I had no expertise, but a lot of clients because I was good at marketing or at least good. I was like, I always used to joke that I'm not the best lawyer and I'm not the best marketer. But if you say you, who's the best marketing lawyer, I think I can compete, <laughs> you know, I can get up there. And so uh, that's kind of how Attorney Group was born was what happened was the neighbor in my tall concrete prison building in Arkansas, you know, that I thought I had to be in when I first started, he came over and he slaps a broad spire recall letter on my desk. And he's like, what is this? And I was like, I have no idea, but I can Google it. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I'll come back. And so of course I Google strike. It was a striker hip recall was what it was. And so when that happened, I started calling all these firms around the country. Evidently it was a big deal. And so I decided, I was like, well, 
they were so hungry to take this case and to spend all the money and the manpower to do it and to give me money for just finding the case. I said, well, well, if that's a need in the industry, let me fill that gap. And so we started, I kind of turned into marketing. I wrote a blog and like, that's kind of was the first concept of attorney group. It was actually called like Arkansas lawyers group at the time or something like that. And then we, we just, like you said, leverage again, as we went there and they were like, another firm said, Hey, if I give you like a hundred grand, will you give me 10 more striker cases? And so we did it very slow, which it's good and bad. We learned a lot and we're very methodical, but it forced me to get granular with marketing and understanding it. Cause I think we signed up 160 where they wanted 10. And then we went from there and just really, we started leveraging Wall Street and financing to grow our firm, you know, and using attorney group as the marketing side. And then recently that has now spun into, we've gotten very good. We've gotten very good at at least definitely like the paid marketing because, you know, there's been a big pivot over the last seven years or so from uh, organic to paid, scaling it quickly. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Organic yeah. has a huge use case in, in a lot of practice areas, but we made that pivot. And then recently, like I said, we've kind of been like, all right, so we've said we're the best people know us for being the best at like a lot of paid advertising lawyers, trust me, because they just, they have this, you know, the clicky, you're a lawyer thing, but we've recently spun that out into its own entity. And now we've just started kind of stealth mode, taking on some clients. Cause I, that's like, if we're the best one, I tell my team, you know, marketing guys prove it right? You're always talking about how you're so great. I was like, well, the only way for us to prove it is to offer it externally and actually get some feedback. There's a lot of people just selling snake oil. It's probably the best way to put it. And so I was like, let's be completely transparent and like shift that dynamic of anyone we work with. Like we will give you real-time stats and all of our spins and everything. I think that's tremendous. Huge advocate for that and the transparency. I think the interesting thing about what you're doing is the data and economies of scale. I look at models like Law Tigers and just some of the other business entities. I think Walker Advertising is doing some of it where, you know, are you going to look at that where these attorneys that trust you can kind of pull spend to maybe get true economies and true data (laughs) for true cost per acquisition? You know, what kind of strategies are going into that? It's very intriguing. I kind of realized recently, so we had built a lot of our sales technology on top of our legal systems because obviously we were doing it for ourselves. I kind of realized over, over COVID, especially, I was like, I'll give you guys some time to just run marketing and see if I kind of, we went to a lot of agile philosophies, a lot of distributed workforce type methods. And I realized our tech was too complicated and a lot of it was in my head. And so I had to rebuild our tech stack up from the ground up. And I realized this is actually the part that's hard. You know, people usually don't get it. it's, you know, the tech behind it, how you add the attribution, the data modeling, like all of the audience targeting, that kind of stuff. And so it made me reevaluate what is like the value I can bring. And yeah, marketing, we were good at it. We can do it, you know, advertising, doing like paid search and paid social. But, but what, what do I think that can be disruptive or innovative? We're going to, you know, we like that word, but uh, I think it is around data standards and data and information and trying to bring that into the space. And so what I would like to do is actually carve out, it's a little bit blue ocean right now because a lot of people talk about data, but they don't have data solutions for anybody to deploy. And so if there was a way to create something like a data pool or like a data swap, where it's like, I'll give you my info and you give me like global information on the economics behind some kind of case acquisition costs, you know, like what round up case costs, like what is it across the country? And you know this, like what? how do you go get that info? You call five people and then take a guess. And you wonder right. if they're using the same criteria and you wonder what the quality is. Yeah, I think it would be very cool. Had some cool talks at MassTorch Made Perfect about with some vendors that have a lot of spins. And they're like, well, as long as you can protect my data and insulate it in some way, 
but do like deduped or like, you know, they don't want to give away their secret sauce and audiences. But I do think there's a collaborative technology out there to really like change the dynamic when it comes to accountability, transparency, and standards of data. I'm kind of interested your take on just marketing in general for case acquisition, because what I'm hearing is like, this is like direct response to a T like, Hey, I'm going to spend this. I'm going to get this case. You know, where does branding fit into that? Does it fit into drive down that overall lower cost per acquisition? You know, what's just your general take on marketing as a whole? Yeah, it's, I've taken a long route to changing my philosophy on this a lot, you know, over time. So I used to be the kind of guy, as you probably could assume where I want like the attribution to everything, you know, multi-touch, you know, cross-channel, omni-channel, multi-attribution. you know, attribution. Like I want to know every single touch point and then value the touch points along the way and create funnels and do all. I want to be very technical about the data. Then like I've kind of realized when you get to like a level of spend where, you know, because I always went national. So obviously I'd go bottom of funnel and I never ran out of capacity to grow until I started spending a ton of money. And then you start saying, all right, well, where do you go from here? You got to go up funnel. And when I say up funnel, you know, it's from like that direct consumer to like more like the uh, desire to buy mid funnel awareness being at the top of the funnel. And then I guess you got to even put thought leadership on top of that or brand. And so I now kind of realized that most people buy on feelings more than they buy on logic or information in the end. And so for you to be better than other people, I think brand gives you lift across the board. Like you kind of zoom out and say, how do I lift my ROI and all my marketing efforts for the year as a company? It's going to be brand. It's going to be positioning something more unique and trusted, I guess, in the industry. I think the value there is huge. I mean, I go back to like, and I know I'm being a little long-winded, but I look at like Nike and I teach my kids this too. It's like, what's the price of a Nike shoe, right? It's like a hundred, say it's a hundred bucks. Well, what's the utility of it? It's a couple dollar shoe. And then it's a $98 brand. And so when you think about what is brand worth, that's it in a nutshell. I think it's the true definition of want versus need. That's a perfect example. When we're talking data, I guess you're looking at cost per acquisition at the bottom, then you would have to redefine and maybe look at CPM, you know, cost per impression. We just had Sarah Parisi on from Whiteheart. that talks a lot about cost per impression on a media buying side. It's interesting though. And I've always thought about this as like, just from a, a marketing perspective to like demographics, right? How can you make that play on a wider scale in terms terms of the top of funnel? And I see attorneys taking positions and they think of it as their niche, but I'm like, well, no, that's appealing to that demographic. And that's why you're not, you know, maybe getting cases from a different area. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. It's interesting. So I'm good friends with the guy that started Chris. And I remember when he started his first group, it was a lot of really high-end firms. And, you know, he does a lot of brand stuff. And when they had a marketing day where the firms came and like presented what's like the best thing they've done in in marketing. And I was thinking, I'm not going to learn anything. I've been doing marketing forever. And it was fascinating because each person kind of went up and they had a lot of similarities. A lot of these guys are PI shops too. So they're local. They could do a lot of like personal injury car wrecks. And, but the theme I got was this, like, I call it the hometown hero theme. It's like most of the time, the best campaign they ever did wasn't about their business wasn't about personal injury or getting cases or calling people back or being serious lawyers. You know, it was really more about like either collaborating with a celebrity or like working with the news stations to give away a scholarship or something that like invested back in the community. And people remembered that more than they actually remembered 
you know, like uh, we call people back or, you know, we get big damages. Like they don't remember that as much as they remember community involvement and personal touch, which is really an effective brand. Yeah, I, I see that. Do you think it's the reciprocity? Do you think they're just building so much of that equity, right? And maybe I hear people talk about giving without expecting anything in return. And I, I truly believe that some people do that. But then I also think that the PI shops, there's a lot of PI shops that are having those turkey giveaways because they want to get cases, right? But maybe it's maybe it's not binary. Maybe it's not either or. Maybe it's like, hey, I want to help people, but I also want cases. I don't know if you've read like Giftology. Like he talks about that. Like if everything's transactional, there's always a contributor and a beneficiary. And if you give something away with a logo on it, you're inherently making it a transaction. It's like you give something away, like I'm your friend. Like, you know, I gave you my Rubik's Cube. That's just in front of me. But, you know, there's no logo on it. And you're going to think, my friend gave me a, a thing, you know. I am a proponent of it. I do think there is a time and place for converting and shifting. And that's when it gets like when you're at marketing, like your job is to think about those things. Like, you know, so it's it's a fine balance definitely between the two. But I, I also think that it bleeds into your culture of your company. If it's authentic and you really are trying to do good, that's going to to be seen by the people you work with and work for. It's an overlap between kind of your brand, the authenticity and the culture behind it. The legal industry is notoriously slow moving when it comes to new technology. And while COVID forced many firms to lean into technology, there's still a long way to go. I wanted to know where he sees the most opportunity for innovation in the legal space. Yeah, so I believe that the technology that drives the legal industry is broken and desperately needs kind of unwavering leadership to make change happen. I think that's where we're at. The biggest issue to me, and I think the driving force, let's go back to COVID, right? So when COVID happened, the unfortunate situation led to a very good outcome. You know, it's kind of like Seth Godin talks about that, just because it was a bad situation or bad decision doesn't necessarily correlate to the outcome. So we had a bad situation, but there's a lot of good things came out of it. One of them was courts shut down all across the country, right? They slowed down, you couldn't get a court date. And think about grandma sitting there for like a speeding ticket and for some reason got put in jail or got towed and she's sitting there and can't get out of prison. But like that's happening all over the country. It became a political issue. So like the fact that you, how are we going to unstick the court systems when they're stuck in the, you know, 30, 40 years behind and when it comes to technology and efficiency. And so now that's driving legal change in the laws of owning law firms. So now you have Arizona just passed, Utah just passed, non-lawyer equity partners of law firms. You got four or five firms doing the same thing. Well, carrying that forward, that's triggering Wall Street to say, we can now invest in litigation-backed finance, you know, in, in, in law firms, possibly own law firms. I mean, that's it's always been possible in DC, but I used to always say that the problem was there's only one. Everyone's a skeptic, you know, and DC looks at that. And the way that I've learned they look at it is that there's no backup plan. So we're out. Now there's a backup plan. There's a few of them and it's going to keep going. And so the amount of capital that's just waiting to come get deployed, it reminds me of like litigation finance 20 years ago. You had this hugely profitable professional services industry. You got a Chinese wall of, about participation from an investment standpoint, and that wall just got broke down. So what's going to happen? It's going to drive standards. They're going to need data transparency because they want to be able to be like have accessibility and visibility on all the capital that could be coming into the space. So I think that if lawyers aren't paying attention to that right now, then there's going to be some huge changes happening, you know, across the the national landscape. Yeah. And I think 
first of all, the grandma behind bars was like the most interesting <laughs> kind of visual description of like throughput and like a bottleneck <laughs> kind of chuckling on the inside there. But what's well, always happened until, you know, like I said, it, until it becomes a political issue, it's a non-issue for a lot, you know, for a lot of times in America, unfortunately, and COVID just slammed the court shut. I mean, you know, anybody that's a trial lawyer, they couldn't get a trial date. So I try to start thinking yeah. about what are the small people, the people that don't have access to justice, don't have the capital, like there's going to be thousands of those people just losing it for good reason. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of just innovation, even on the capital allocation and like, you know, how attorneys can get capital when cases weren't settled. Uh, I think some businesses kind of developed there too. I look at, geez, the investment, the amount of capital going into theirs and just thinking like, what would the, what would the cost per acquisition be for a case and say Arizona once you know, private equity and and more investors kind of hit that market. So that's where I've kind of been like, even though where I would love to have forward integration and be able to take our skills and apply that, it's just like, I don't know that Arizona, you know, maybe when it opens up a little bit more. So I'm just kind of interesting on in how these investors are approaching this and thinking about this, but they have substantial amounts of money yeah. to where they can they can do that. A lot of the investment capital was going to focus on national litigations with simply corporate headquarters in the states. So that enables them to deploy nationally on, say, a mass torts or class actions or stuff like that. Now, personal injury firms Got like it. investing to be the best, you know, the uh, in Arizona, who's out there, uh, Brayer or, uh, or, yeah, Lerner or Goldwater, whoever it is, it's going to get more competitive. But for someone like what you're talking about, I think it's a smart way to look at it, which is, you have a piece that is in the technology world, in the marketing world, like that is standard. There's, it's much more um, structured. You have all the technology driving marketing to be good at it and lawyers don't. But I think that the law firm of the future, the one that's investable or backed, or it's going to take over is going to be the ones that take the stuff that you, that you do with web work and with technology work. And they have some of these things and they're going to say, think about a guy that has a billion dollars and they, if they have a firm in Arizona, they're probably thinking, we're just going to go replicate this firm in every single state that pops open, you know, for PI. Well, what are they going to look at whenever they acquire a company? Leadership first, you know, then they look at uh, process technology stacks and you start looking at integration options. And that's where I go. I think it's smart for you to look at because maybe there's five firms that all use you in some way. Well, now you are the connector that makes mergers and acquisitions possible for those, for those VC funds. Really interesting. And I, I think that even to further continue this. And we had, you know, Andrew Finkelstein on, and he's one of, I don't know many attorneys that do M&A, right? It's, it's more fractured and I get that. So it makes it a little bit more challenging, but I think that could open up a lot of opportunities there too, to kind of, you know, do M&A and do mergers and like kind of pull in brands. Yeah. It's interesting because it's uh, one thing I ran across recently was the idea of succession planning for a law firm. Right. There's not really the golden parachute unless you have like a son that's a lawyer with you in a small firm. It's like, how, and you know, Morgan's going around kind of buying some firms, but it's not really a, a plan for any lawyer to think about, you know. And then so lawyers typically are like, well, I guess I'll just work forever <laughs> with my name on the right. shingle and then maybe figure it out someday. Like there is no plan. But I think that by creating this money and these standards, you, you almost get this opportunity to then buy into firms on a large franchise type scale. And that actually allows people to become investable law firms. Like if you're now an investable law firm, maybe you can now have an option to sell part or all of it someday. So it is an exit strategy that has never existed before. And I think those, 
the attorneys that I think are on the pro side of this non-attorney owned, I think those are the ones that are looking at it from they're they're seeing that as one of the main benefits. Yeah. Oh, for sure. sure. I agree completely. And, and we have some of the same philosophies and anyone that's investing in some of the things like that, we spend our time and effort on the technology, some of the, the more up-to-date business practices, even branding, like all these things are, are valuable in the corporate world or in the M&A world, you know, the mergers acquisitions world. If you're not focusing on that, you may have some legacy stickiness, but you can be the best lawyer in the world. If you're sitting in a dark corner, you're not going to help anybody. Anthony is not only the CEO of Attorney Group, but the founder of Johnson Firm, a national personal injury and mass torts litigation firm. I wonder here what innovative practices he has on the horizon. So it's funny. Um, we were doing a brand project, right? So I, I wanted, I was, I got my buddy. He's one of the best brand companies in Chicago and he came down and we were trying to think like we were talking to wall street a lot. And we come to realize that what I do is not normal. <laughs> you start to think about the tech part, the marketing part, the law firm part, the call center, the balance sheets don't look like other law firms, you know, mind it. Like my operations is very different than this typical paralegal lawyer one. And so we almost, we started to pivot and we said, well, what if I did something crazy, you know, very unlike me. What if we brand like our vision of like without a company, like vision first, like core values, like what do we stand for? And so we actually came out and we haven't really presented this to the world, but we made a, a brand called Stellium. And what the mission is, is to create like a cohesive collection of entities that kind of ignite the way the legal industry does business. And in doing that, we split up the law firm into a law firm. We sort of marketing company into a you know attorney group truly now, where that actually helps other lawyers do marketing, paid marketing mostly. And then we have actually what's funny is me and Yaya actually have partnered in Datavative as now part of the Stellium as well. And so that company does app development, like post integration work for a lot of CRMs, uh, which is very insightful. We learn a lot about the industry and how how the machinery turns. And we're all kind of united under this common thing. And the idea came from my buddy. We we're at dinner after this kind of brand exercise where we all had everyone participate and he gave him the full story. And he goes, it's almost like you guys are planning this revolving around the same sun, right? So there is like, no one lives on the sun, but it's the heat source of the solar system. So like you define that sun, like what do you call the sun? What are the values of the sun? Like what's important, but the actual companies are kind of rotating around it. You're all as a collection going the same direction, but you did not necessarily on the same planet. So it's kind of a planet law firm, planet marketing, planet uh, dev shop. And each one of those planets make total sense to the outside world, you know, to the business world. Mm -hmm. And so I would say what's next for us is really just continuing that transition from our law firm doing it all and our marketing doing it all for us to completely putting that on his head and saying, are we the best in the world or something as a law firm? And we do a few things that I would say, I would argue we are at the cutting edge, including our class work that we're doing, that we're creating a lot of case law around the country on. So we do a lot of that in-house. But besides that, I was like, let's go work with the best attorneys. I was watching like a, a Joe Freed, like a big trucking attorney. You may know him. And I was watching him talk and like him talk about the courtroom and people sitting there. It's like, we're just wanting to watch him go to court, you know, lawyers. And I was like, let's not think we all have to be Iron Man. Let's build suits. You know, so like, how can we equip him with like the suit around the man? Like, how can we equip him with technology? And how can we get him the cases that are best to help the best people? How can we market for people that want to go with the best firms and create data standards that are going to actually 
empower individuals to find justice and get access to justice themselves as well. So that's you know, the goal of the mission. Geez, there's so much there that I would, I would love to pick your brain a ton on this. I think that's kind of an interesting discussion is like how that plays into status versus wealth, because I could see like the status oriented may not want to give away. They may be one of the center of attention, but really from a wealth orientation, it's, it's, it is the true best play. Yeah. No, I like, I like both of those framework, you know, core and context. It's funny. We actually talk about like our core offerings, our core capabilities a lot, and we incubate anything that's not to say, is this something we want to pull into our core or do we want to admit it's not something we would need to fold in? It's one of those, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, it's like CJ Young. He talks about like looking in the reflection for the first time and seeing your face and being, being shocked at the person you see. It's one of those moments, like looking in the reflection and saying, is that me or should it not be me? You know, and a lot of lawyers really struggle with saying, I can't do it all. You know, we're all David fighting Goliath, but then we want to come on and try to play business too in our spare time. It just doesn't work. And so you got to kind of pick your greatness. That's an amazing point of view. And, and Anthony, this has been amazing. We, we may have to have a part two to discuss this in, in more detail. One final question here, you know, so where can people go to learn more about you and just connect with you and, uh, and what you're doing? Youraturney.com is my law firm. Obviously, I mentioned Stellium. We have Stellium.co right now. It's kind of a, it's a teaser. We're going to funnel kind of the narrative, the story of all of our companies through there. So that's probably a good touch point for anyone just interested in the topics we covered here. But other than that, I'm pretty, I'm around. Dial sevens in Arkansas, any area code. Investable law firms may change the way attorneys think about building their practice from the start. Future exit strategies might look more like a franchise than a succession plan. Selling part or all of your firm is an option that never existed before. But to get there requires a new way of looking at the firm's value. Anthony sees integration options as the seeker sauce, placing an emphasis on collaboration and connection. I'd like to thank Anthony Johnson from Johnson Firm for sharing his story with us, and I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.